Let's take our Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7 tonight. Matthew chapter 7, and uh, we will be looking together at verses 1 through 6. These might be some of the most well-known verses in the whole Bible. At least they're verses you hear lots of people quote to you from time to time. Maybe you have it, but I know I have. Have you ever heard verse 1? Judge not that ye be not judged. Doesn't the Bible tell you not to judge? Well, we'll see what it says tonight, right? The Bible says in verse 2, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that's in thy brother's eye? But considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Or, or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. So what's Jesus saying? Is He saying that there should never be any judgment? Well, think about who Jesus' audience was, who He'd been dealing with already. We've gone through a lot of the Sermon on the Mount so far, the, the Beatitudes, all those statements that, where you say that it has been said, but I say unto you, and he goes through things like loving your neighbor and doing good to others and not speaking falsely, all these different things. Who was Jesus targeting through those messages? He was dealing with the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day who had come up with a whole system of traditions and ways of doing things. And they themselves viewed themselves as, as perfect, as able to do everything that they were supposed to be doing. And they were looking down on others around them. So in that same audience, it's carried right over here into chapter 7, is Jesus is speaking out against the religious, pharisaical way of living, who says, I've come up with a whole set of traditions, and if you don't live the way I live, therefore I am better than you. Jesus references these traditions over in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 6. He says, and honor not his father, his mother, he shall be free. He said, thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. You know, traditions are things we all love. We enjoy the family traditions. We enjoy uh, traditions that are just our normal routine of life, right? And you know how it is when you get out of routine. When you get out of tradition, things just don't feel right. I remember when I was in college, being away from home for the first time and waking up and having to do things that I wasn't used to doing when I lived at home and having to live around a bunch of guys in a dormitory that I wasn't used to living around. And I remember having to go to the dining hall on Sundays and have, have lunch with all the other students instead of just being able to go home and see what mom put in the crock pot. You know, there's just something about college dining hall food that doesn't hold up to mom's crock pot, even though probably in 
junior high and high school, I may have complained about that crock pot a few times. She's here. She can probably validate that for you. But you know, when our traditions get changed or aren't followed, it often feels frustrating to us. And sometimes we can get to a place in our life where the traditions now become equal with the truth. The traditions become equal with the truth. And when tradition becomes equal with truth, now all of a sudden, when tradition doesn't get followed, we feel like the truth has been broken or has not been followed. And Jesus is saying here about these scribes and Pharisees, you've come up with these traditions, you've elevated it equal with truth, and so now you're holding people to your traditions instead of actually following the truth. Jesus said in Matthew 15, I'm sorry, Jesus did not, but the question was asked in Matthew 15 and verse 2 of Jesus. They said, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. That was a big deal. Somebody was following those disciples in the bathroom. Like you've, you've done this at Whataburger. You know what I'm talking about. And you go, that guy didn't wash his hands. Ooh, that's gross. Might be gross, but they weren't breaking the law. Right? But yet the, the Pharisees had elevated this to the, their tradition was now equal with the truth. And so when they saw somebody not washing their hands, they said, boy, that guy's in sin. He didn't wash his hands. I mean, he might stink, but he's not in sin, right? Do you understand what's going on here? The Pharisees were sinning because of their self-righteousness. And they looked down on everyone who was not a part of their elite system. Jesus said this in John chapter 7, verse 24, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. The book of James chapter 2 says we're not just to give preference to those who dress nicely when they come into church. Rather, we're supposed to minister to people not based on what they wear, making a judgment based on appearance, but rather, he says, to judge righteous judgment. I think one of the clearest picture of this false kind of judgment that often takes place as people judge based on traditions rather than truth is the story in Luke chapter 18, verses 11 to 14, where the Bible says that there was this Pharisee who stood and prayed thus with himself. And he said, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even, and he motions with this other guy, as this publican, this tax collector. Sure am glad I'm not like this tax collector. Think about that statement. What does that even mean? Has he just passed judgment on this tax collector? He doesn't know this guy. He knows nothing about him except he's a tax collector. Well, he must be evil. Works for the IRS, right? I, I, like, like that's literally the judgment that he's passing, knowing nothing else other than this man's occupation. Therefore, he must be beneath me. And the Bible says, that this Pharisee in his prayer said this, I fast twice in the week. And I give tithes of all that I possess. Well, we looked at fasting a few weeks ago. Is fasting a wonderful opportunity for us to draw closer to God through prayer? Absolutely. But is, fast, is fasting a command? Is it something God said, thou shalt fast? No. No. How about tithing? 
Is giving to the Lord a way for us to show our relationship with God? Absolutely. Are we to give? Sure. But can you measure somebody's spirituality by how much money they put in the offering plate? No. The Bible says about the publican that he stood afar off. And he would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. And he smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man, this publican went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. See, the judgment that Jesus was speaking about in Matthew chapter 7 is the kind of judgment that wants to put someone else down to be able to lift yourself up. Judging somebody to put them down so you can put yourself up, to justify yourself so you can condemn someone else is wrong. When you elevate yourself, you're always lowering everybody else accordingly. Now, we're going to look at some other scripture here because the truth is that While we are not to be putting others down, this doesn't mean that believers should never evaluate truth. It doesn't mean that you can't ever look at something that's wrong and say, that's wrong. We live in a world today that says, don't, don't judge me. Don't be just everybody get along. It's okay. But that's not actually what the Bible teaches. The Bible's not saying here that we should get rid of all courts of law. Some of you have heard of the author Leo Tolstoy. He wrote a big, long book, War and Peace, right? He claims that Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 was teaching that we should get rid of all of the court system. Interesting thing about Leo Tolstoy. Clearly, he didn't, wrote long books. He's a great author, but didn't know his Bible. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. See, when we know the truth, as we'll look at a little bit more here, but when we know what the truth is, It does divide. Right doctrine does divide. Right doctrine teaches us what true holiness is. It teaches us what unity is and what fellowship are and are not. Right doctrine divides, but you know, right doctrine also unites. The Bible says, how can two walk together except it be agreed? I like when when I ask my girlfriend at the time to be my wife and she agreed to do that and then she married me 17 years ago next month we had some things we agreed on we we wanted to go in the same direction that those things we agreed upon those truths that we found the same in each of our lives those things united us but in the same way that those truths united us it also separated us from some other people. When we made vows to one another, we're now united around that truth of those promises that we made one to another. But at the same time that we vowed to be together, we also vowed to be apart from a whole lot of other people. In fact, we vowed to forsake all others and to hold ourselves one to the other. That sounds really exclusive. Well, you show me the marriage that's not exclusive that works well. It's not found in the Bible. There were some marriages that were not exclusive in the Bible. Solomon, he was a really bad example. A thousand you know, women there, 300 wives, 700 concubines. It doesn't work. Why? Because doctrine, it does divide, but it also unites. Christ here is, is not 
creating division just to create division. He's giving us a distinction between what true religion is, a true relationship with God, and what false religion looks like. In fact, I think you could say in studying the Sermon on the Mount that there's probably never been a more controversial or judgmental sermon ever preached than the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is looking at Pharisees and saying, you're wrong on this, you're wrong on that. You said you're right on this, but really you're wrong on that. Wow, Jesus, why are you being so judgmental? Well, judgment in the sense of discerning right from wrong and saying this is right and this is wrong is not what God is condemning here. In fact, I think you'll see as we look at the verses more closely, he's telling us we ought to discern between right and wrong in this way. At the same time, we're not to put others down through our judgments that we make. By discerning and being perceptive in what you believe and do, we are able to beware of the false prophets and false teachers that are out there. If you don't know the truth, then how do you know what the error is? Over in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says this about two brothers. These would be people in a relationship in a church, two brothers in the same church. He says in verse 15, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. How can you tell him his fault if you can't judge, if you can't make a discernment and say, hey, you're wrong? He says, go and tell him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take thee one or two more. Then in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Here, here Jesus is teaching us to judge what others are doing. You understand the difference between judging and being judgmental is what he's talking about here, that we are to be discerning if this is wrong, if it doesn't match up with the word of God, if somebody's living in error, or living in sin, a true brother would go and confront them and say, listen, you're wrong and I want you to be right. In this sense, judging is really a way to love somebody. It's kind of like this. I'm, I, I am in my... In my job for our kids' swim team, I'm the referee. You know what my job is? Is to judge whether or not their strokes are correct. And my paper on Saturday is going to be covered with red ink and a lot of little letters that say DQ, DQ, DQ. Those stand for disqualified. It's not because I hate swimmers or hate swimming. It's because I want to help these little ones learn how to swim well and learn how to stroke properly and learn the the proper form, the proper technique to be able to swim across the pool. Now, do people ever get mad at the umpire, the referee? Sure, all the time. Do referees make mistakes? Absolutely. But the fact that you have a referee is not a bad thing. The fact that when you look at things going on around you or you look at someone's actions and you try to make a judgment, is this right or is that wrong? That's not a bad thing. In fact, it can be a very loving thing and a helpful thing. 
if we had all these children swimming and they were doing it improperly and no one ever bothered to come alongside and say, hey, you're not kicking right. You're not doing, what's wrong with you? Why are you judging all those kids? Let them swim how they want to swim. I don't want them to drown. Like they, they don't know what they're doing. They're never going to improve. Think about it, if a teacher never graded a test, hey, you just put whatever answer you want down. It doesn't matter. Two plus two, it equals whatever you want it to equal. That'd be foolish, right? No, we need somebody to come along and judge and say, nope, sorry, you spelled that wrong. Nope, sorry, that's not the proper answer to that equation. That kind of judgment is not what Jesus is speaking about. And yet, sometimes even that level of judgment is the kind of judgment that this world says, don't judge me. Or sometimes we even say ourselves, don't judge me. Who are you to judge? Well, in just a minute, we're going to find out we aren't the judge. God is the judge. In the same sense, did you know the referee at the swim team, I'm actually not even the actual judge. It's the rule book that's been written for the swimmers that I'm responsible to make sure the swimmers are swimming in line with. That's the final authority. And it's my job to just help people follow with the rule book that's already been written. You know, the teacher who's grading the math test isn't actually the judge of what's right and wrong. It's all of those scholars for years and years and years who have studied math and said, no, two plus two really does equal four. That's where the judgment comes from. Did you know when we look at the word of God, no, we're not the judges. God is the judge and his word is the judge. But it's actually helpful for us if we know God's word and we take God's word and help other people to see, do you line up with it or do you not line up with it? Now, if you're the one feeling that, I don't know if I do, it can feel very judgmental. And in a few minutes, we'll see how Jesus speaks about our attitude in this. We have to be very careful because even taking the rule book, if you will, and showing it to somebody, it can be done in a judgmental attitude with the wrong attitude. And then it makes it wrong all over again. So even if you have the right rule book, you can still do it in the wrong way, right? In the same way, the teacher might be grading that test. They might, do they mark that two plus two and the and student writes five? Do they mark it with, with an X or do they scratch it out and say, you are so dumb. What is your problem? Why don't you get this right? No, both are judging the student's wrong answer. One is being done in a way to correct and point them towards what's right. The other is just to demean and tear them down. Do you see the difference between the two? The same thing happens in our spiritual relationship with one another and with God as we take His Word and as we apply it to this life. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18 speak about this kind of judgment that ought to take place, the right kind. Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them, he says. How do you avoid them? Well, you have to know who's not doing right. How do you know if they're not doing right? You compare them to the rule book, to the Word of God that God's given us. And he says, For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. In other words, they're in it for themselves. They're not in it to follow Jesus. 
those who are not in it to follow Jesus, those are not people that you want to assume are doing the right thing because they're behaving for their own best interests instead of living for the Lord. And he says, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Those who are living for themselves often deceive those who think that by, by making them think we're doing okay. They say nice things. They do nice things. But if their heart is not to follow Christ, this is somebody, he says, avoid them. This isn't, it doesn't mean we don't share the gospel. It doesn't mean we don't love them. It doesn't mean we don't try to encourage them. But this isn't the person you want to make your best friend. Paul even wrote this. Man, he's, man I'm starting to sweat now. He's, he's really getting in our business. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, he says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or railer or drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, know not to eat. Paul's saying, we, we need to know what's right, we, know, we need to know what's wrong, and we don't need to pattern our lives after those who are doing wrong. Our society says, well, we should just accept everybody. We don't accept everybody's choices, though. People choose right or they choose wrong. And again, ultimately, is it up to me or you to accept? No, it's up to God, but if God doesn't accept it, I can't accept what God rejects if I'm going to be right with God. You and I can't allow what God disallows and be right with God. And ultimately, again, back to my illustration of standing on the pool deck marking disqualifications on the swimming. If I'm marking this thing, it has to be in line with the rule book. If it's not in line with the rule book, well, then I'm just making up my own rules and it doesn't really matter. And I'll, they'll, the way it works is they'll protest and they'll say, that referee doesn't know what he's doing. And pretty soon I won't be a referee anymore. And, uh, and everybody would go on and be like, boy, we're sure glad to get rid of that referee. He was a terrible referee. This is why this issue is such a sticky thing for us. Because as we walk with the Lord, we are to be in submission to Him, allowing God to lead us and to direct us. We have to be submissive to His Word. We have to submit our attitude to His Word and His way. We're not running around with a big stick. Yep, you messed up. No, that's God's job. But it is my job to be faithful to God's word. And if I have a brother that's messed up, then I've got to go to him and help him get right. Not because I'm his judge, because God is his judge. In fact, we're even to make judgments about preaching. Paul says this in Galatians 1.8, But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That means when you listen to preaching, you don't say, Well, he said it from the pulpit, so it must be okay. No. He says, make sure it's in line with the Word of God. And if it's not, don't pay any attention to that guy. Isn't this interesting? If we're going to deal with this issue of judgment, it really puts a lot of the responsibility upon us to know what the truth is. I quoted this first Sunday, but I think it's so true, and we all need to be reminded of it often. Paul wrote, and he said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
for too long. Many have lived thinking, well, you know, as long as I'm a pretty nice person, it'll be okay. As long as I do good things, it'll be okay. And the reason people are often led into error in a way, this isn't about being nice or being mean. No, this is about just knowing the truth and then being able to walk in that truth in love. Paul wrote in Ephesians, he said, we are to speak the truth in love, right? But we still have to speak the truth. And often the truth just doesn't get spoken at all because, well, we don't really know the truth. Well, this is how I've always felt about that. Well, just tell us what the Bible says. Tell us what the Bible says. This word judge, the, the Greek word, if you want to go there and look at it, is krino. It means to separate, to, to choose, to select, or to determine. Before you judge, though, as we'll see in our passage, we're about to go back and really look at Matthew 7. Before you judge, you have to take care that you're not living self-righteously, hastily, unmercifully with prejudice towards somebody else or unwarranted condemnation just based on human standards or human understanding. So I want to give you three reasons that judgment is sinful back from our text and then hopefully a balanced view of all of this as we pull it all together at the end. Number one, judgment is sinful as an erroneous view of God, an erroneous, a wrong view of God. Sorry, you'll have to figure out how to spell erroneous on your own. I didn't get it typed up on the screens for you, but uh, it's an erroneous, erroneous view of God. What, what do you mean? Well, Matthew 7, verse 1, he says, Judge not that ye be not judged. The idea here is this, that you and I don't get to play God. We don't get to put ourselves in the judgment seat as the absolute judge. You and I are not the final court. There is somebody a lot higher than us, and his name is God. He's given us his word. You and I don't get to set the standard. God does. God does. So as part of this, we have to be really careful we don't, judge motives because you really don't know what somebody's motive is now you know well you say you don't know their motive but but you know what they really were trying to do no you actually don't oh come on pastor you know what they were doing you know what they meant by that no you don't you think you know and that's the natural part of us to want to judge that right they had to they i know they meant that in the wrong way they couldn't have meant it any other way. Can you really see in their heart? No, but God can. But God can. So all we, all we have available to us to be able to judge is the action. And it's really hard for us to separate the action from the motive, right? The motive. So don't try to be God, but you should be discerning and examining. So you can judge what somebody says, you can, you can judge based on what they do, but you really can't judge based on what they're thinking. You don't know what they're thinking. But actions either are in line with God's Word or they're out of line with God's Word. Words are either in line with God's Word or they're out of line with God's Word. And so this is where we have to approach this issue of judgment very carefully. 
right? So this isn't something to rush in. All right, I'm ready to judge. No, you're not. No, you're not. Because you're not the final judge. God is. So judgment is sinful when you have the wrong view of God, where you're trying to be God and not letting God be God. Number two, judgment is sinful as an erroneous view of others. When you take a wrong view of others. Verse 2 of Matthew 7 says, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. I'm going to make a statement. Let it sit for a minute and see what you think. But I, I think it's true. Most people think they're superior to somebody else. Why? We do, right? It, it's natural for us. There's somebody out there somewhere. Boy, I don't know what their problem is. It's, it's like that, that Pharisee and that publican in the temple, right? Boy, I sure am thankful not like that. Thankful my situation is not like theirs. I don't know what's wrong. Boy, if they just get their act together, things would be a lot better. Most people think they're superior to others. The Pharisees thought they were exempt from judgment because they perfectly measured up to divine standard. You know, they, they had created the standard, and they measured up to the standard that they created. But those were human standards. So what's he saying here in verse 2? He says, with the judgment that you judge, you will also be judged. With the measure ye meet, or what you measure with, your measuring stick, it'll be measured to you again. But who's the ultimate judge? Are you the judge or is God the judge? God's the judge. In other words, God judges everybody fairly because He judged them by the same standard. By the same standard. That's one of the things, as a, as a swimming referee, they, they teach you, or they at least tell you, hey, do your best to not give an unfair advantage to your own children. Because every dad and mom that's out there doing this, of course, oh, my kids, no, they're, they didn't really mess up that bad. So you know the way they do that. They have more than one referee. There's multiple officials out there. And your job, you have to look at, at multiple lanes, and you only get to look at a portion of the pool. So even if your kid is doing terrible here and you're giving him a freebie pass and then he gets to the next section, he's probably going to get disqualified by another official. Why? Because the one official is not the standard. The rule book's the standard. And so having multiple officials helps to keep there from being unfair judgments made. Now, are mistakes made? Absolutely. It happens all the time. But biblically, what's he saying here? God is the ultimate judge, and the Word of God, God's standard, is what everybody's going to be judged by, is the same standard. Not your standard or my standard or what I've decided is that this or that. No, God's going to judge based on this. So when I judge, when I go into judgment, I better be really careful not taking the wrong view of somebody else because God doesn't have double standards. God's not going to judge them for their sin and then give me a free pass. For mine. And when I live my life thinking, well, I'm better than other people, I deserve better than other people, now all of a sudden I'm putting myself in a position where I'm like, well, surely God won't judge me for these things, but I sure wish He'd judge them. And He's reminding us, He said, listen, when you start to judge, be careful because the standard is the same for you than it is for them. 
There's no double standard. And he's saying this, false judgment will come back on you, right? He says, with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. It's going to come back on you. It's like a boomerang. If you get busy falsely judging other people, watch out. People will falsely judge you too. There's the story in the book of Esther of the man by the name of Haman. Remember him? He was the assistant to the king. And he had it out for Mordecai, Esther's uncle. He even built this gallows that was super tall, and he wanted to hang Mordecai there for everybody to see. But what ended up happening to Haman? He found himself hanging from those same gallows. Look at one more. There's, there's one more I want you to see. Book of Judges. Judges. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Judges chapter 1. I'll find it here. Judges 1, verse 6 and 7. There's this king, Adonai Bezek. What a name. It says, But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued after him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. That, that sounds pretty awful. And it says, and Adonai Bezek said, three score and ten kings having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table, as I have done, so God hath requited me. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. So this was a wicked king. And every time he would conquer another king, he would cut off their toes and their thumbs, and he'd stick them under his table. And they just kind of lived, sounds like, animals down there. And they'd probably throw some scraps down there. It was really... Abusive and oppressive, right? But the same thing happened to him that he did to everybody else. And he recognized, he said, you know, the same thing I did to everybody else is what God did to me. It's what God did to me. That's an extreme case. But the point is clear. Be careful with the judgment that you hand out because God has, fair, God has equal judgment. There's no double standards. And when you hand it out, it'll come back. It'll come back. Final reason that judgment is sinful based on this passage of Scripture here is an erroneous view of ourselves, a wrong view of ourselves. You see, when we have a wrong view of God, it gives us a wrong view of others, and it also gives us a wrong view of ourselves. Do you remember when Isaiah went into the temple and he saw the Lord high and lifted up? What happened? He says, woe is me. Here's a man, a prophet of God, and he comes in. When he really gets a clear view of who God is, he realizes his own sin and his own wickedness and his own struggle. See, when we have a right view of God, it gives us a right view of others, and it gives us a right view of ourselves. Back in our text in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, he says, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye. You see, when we have a wrong view of God, we cannot have a right view of others and of ourselves. When you put yourself in God's place as judge, you pervert your perspective of others and of yourself. This thing, this moat, this speck that's in the one man's eye, and then he says the beam or the log that's in the other guy's eye, some people say, well, this speck is not a big deal. No, the word here 
speck or mote refers to like a, a little twig or even like a little thorn that was stuck in his eye. So it was small, but it was still significant. The point here is not that one guy's sin is insignificant and yours is really significant. No, the point is both are a struggle, but the guy with the big log sticking out of his eye is in no way prepared to be able to do what needs to be done to help the guy with the thorn in his eye. See, sin blinds us to our own sinfulness. And the sin that blinds us to our own sinfulness, probably more than any other sin, is self-righteousness. Which is what Jesus was dealing with with these Pharisees, right? Self-righteousness. I'm better. I'm better than everybody else. And he says, that's the sin of self-righteousness. It blinds you. It's like this giant log in your eye. There's no way you can see to be able to help somebody else with their issue. Jesus condemned this sin over and over in the scribes and Pharisees. So... What's the right balance? Well, let's go back to our text. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, he says, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. And verse 6, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. He's speaking here of the right balance between humility, dealing with your own issue first, and conviction. He doesn't say, well, just let your brother go around with a speck in his eye. No, he says, make sure you deal with your own issue first. Confess your own sin, your own self-righteousness, your own desire to rush in and, and judge and deal with them. Confess that. Make sure that's right with God. Have humility, but then seek to help your brother. Seek to help your brother. See, the problem with the attitude that says, well, I will never judge anybody, is actually not an attitude of love at all. This poor guy's got a thorn in his eye, and you don't care? I don't want him to think I'm judging him. He's going to go blind if somebody doesn't help him. Well, I don't want him to think I'm judging him. So, when I approach this situation, I'm not going to rush in with my big log in my eye and knock it. No. Lord, help me deal with this. Lord, I'm sure there's something in my life that I need to get right. Show me what that is, God. Lord, where's the, where's the sin in me? I, I don't want to rush in. There. Please help this guy not to think that I'm better than him because I know I'm not, Lord. I need your help in this. I think King David exemplified this very well in Psalm 51. Turn over there real quick. We're going to look at a few verses there in closing. This psalm was written, at least it's attributed to the time when the prophet Nathan came to David to speak to him about his sin after David had gone into Bathsheba. And the Bible says this in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness." According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. 
against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Remember when the prophet Nathan came before David and he began to tell him the story about the man who stole his neighbor's sheep and the, the whole thing. And, and David gets really frustrated. He says, who is this man so I can deal with him? And Nathan looks at him and he says, thou art the man. It's you. But David's response recorded here for us is a beautiful display of humility and confession of his sin. Look down at verse 10. He says, God created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Restore, verse 12, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Now notice verse 13. Here's the balance of this judgment, the humility we've read verses 1 through 12. I skipped over a few just for sake of time. But notice verse 13. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. See, as God brought the very painful judgment in David's life, where he had to recognize his sin, that he was the man, he responded in humility before the Lord. God, forgive me. God, I need a new heart. God, I'm wrong. I'm in sin. And then he says, Lord, restore to me. Give me the joy of my salvation. Give it to me again, Lord. Why? So I can then help somebody else. So I can help get somebody else's speck out of their eye. You know, isn't it an amazing thing? David's heart, his response to God, this is really, I think, clearly the reason why God called him a man after his own heart. And we're here tonight, and David's helping us get some of the specks out of our eyes because he had a right heart before God. So when we read David, yeah, we read of his sin, but we also read of his restoration. And David, to so many, has become a spiritual hero, an example to them of somebody to learn from. Don't do all the bad things he did, but learn, for, learn about his desire for God and follow after God. Isn't it pretty amazing that David is actually getting to live out this verse 13 and he's not even living on this earth anymore? He's teaching transgressors the ways of God. And sinners are being converted to the Lord, are getting right with God because of his work for us. And I see that because David was willing to humble himself. So how are we going to minister to others? How are we going to bring judgment when judgment needs to come? Well, we're not the judge. So, so God brings the ultimate judgment. But when we come in to discern, is this right? Is this right? What should we be doing in this situation? We have the Word of God. We are not to create our own separate, special, secret, inside standard that nobody else knows about. No, it's right here. It's right here. And we're to come in with humility. But we need to come in with enough love for our brothers and sisters to say, I'm going to work hard to deal with my own sin, but I want to help you to work through your issue as well. It'd be a lot easier to just walk away and say, hmm, hope they figure it out at some point. But that's not love. That's not love. In fact, 
probably that's love for yourself. Well, I don't want to get in the middle of that. Sometimes we don't do it because we're just self-absorbed. Sometimes we don't do it because at the end of the day, it's what we rely on to keep feeling superior towards somebody else. I don't want to be accused of judging. I'm not going to get into that. No, we have to make every effort in humility to minister to others. And then Jesus says in verse 6, Give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under feet and turn again and rend you. This here is Jesus making very clear to us that we have a responsibility with the truth. We need to use it wisely. And there are some people that want nothing to do with it. Don't keep throwing it down if they're just going to chew it up and spit it out and run over it and tear it up. No, go find those who want to receive the truth and, and keep sharing the truth with them. There's judgment taking place in a sense, right? There's discernment taking place there. You may say, oh, I don't want to have to be saddled with that responsibility. I know. You should have seen how hard it's been to recruit officials for swim team this year because some of you are like, don't make me have to decide if that kid is kicking flutter kick or butterfly kick. I don't want to have to do that. I understand, right? It's not really comfortable for anybody to have to do that. But as I've encouraged our officials, or soon-to-be officials on swim team, it's okay. We'll train you. We'll give you the rule book. We'll teach you how to discern what's right and what's not right. We'll let you make the call, but there will be somebody else to confirm it along with you so you're not standing there all by yourself saying, they messed up, and you're like, I'm not sure, maybe if, and you'll grow in your confidence and be able to do that. I think the same thing could be said, don't you, about our spiritual walk with the Lord? That we're not asking you to start running around with your Bible and just whacking people's heads off. No. Why don't you get with a, a spiritually mature person like somebody who can disciple you in our church and say, hey, I, I saw this the other day on the news or I read this in a book the other day or one of my friends said this and I'm not sure if that's right or not. Let me show you from the Bible. Let's, let's see what the Bible has to say. Because God's the judge, right? Let's see what it says. Mm, you know what? I, I don't know what their motive was in saying that. We can't judge the motive. But that statement doesn't seem to hold true based on what the Word of God says. Or that action, that's not right based on the Word of God. Say, well, what do I do about this? Well, let's pray. God, give us wisdom how we can use this truth to help this person. Because we know people naturally, nobody wants to feel like somebody else is judging them. But maybe, Lord, you give us an opportunity to speak the truth to them in love. An opportunity to point out where they're wrong. Not just to put them down and say, you're wrong. But to be able to show them what's right so that they can follow the truth. And I think as we work together as a body to encourage one another in truth. And as we work together to help one another grow in our discernment and our understanding of truth. I do believe this is a tremendous way that the church can be a light to this world because the church then becomes a church, a body of people that are focused, that are unified around truth, who actually know what the truth is. Because remember, truth can divide, but it also unites. And it can be a church that actually has an effect. Like, how sad to think of these proverbial people walking around with specks in their eyes and nobody caring enough to do anything about it. I've had a few specks in my eyes in my life and it's no fun. And think about this, we have a world all around us 
of people that are hurting and they're lost and they don't know what to do or where to go. God's given us the truth. He's given us the word. We've got to deal with our own attitudes and our own sin first. If we go running around, logs in the eyes, we're going to be knocking people over left and right. And we'll hurt more people than we'll help. But if we'll do it in the spirit that Christ has commanded us to go in, and we'll do it intentionally knowing, boy, we need God's help because this is not going to be easy. I believe we can make a real difference in this world together for Christ as we live according to his word. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your truth. And I've done my best to explain it as best I know how. But Lord, your spirit takes your word and drives it into our hearts to help us to know the truth. And I believe the spirit, the Holy Spirit in each of us resonates together around this truth. Lord, help us not to just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of it. To do as David said he wanted to do, to cry out to you that you would create in us a clean heart. Lord, show us our sin, our pride, and self-righteousness. It, it just, it's in all of us. Help us to confess it and continue to deal with it and to keep our eyes on you and to know your word and to love those around us enough to point them to Christ. Because, Lord, there's coming a day when every knee will bow before you. You, the righteous judge, will stand up and pass judgment. Lord, help us in this life not to pass judgment on others, but rather use the discerning spirit that you've given us through your word to be able to see what's right and what's wrong and be able to, in love, point others towards Christ. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.